This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thank you for downloading or streaming your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can catch new episodes every Thursday, so just tap or click subscribe to keep updated. Today, we're looking at English hillside chalk art. This includes the Cern Abbas Giant in Dorset, the Long Man of Wilmington in East Sussex, the Westbury White Horse in Wiltshire, and the Uffington White Horse in Oxfordshire. All of these figures shine brightly, carved into the pastures of hills that act as their rich green canvas. But what connects them? How old are they? And why were they created? Well, Professor Ronald Hutton and Dr Susan Greeney are here to answer those questions and more. Professor Hutton is an English Heritage Trustee and Professor of History at the University of Bristol, and Dr Greeney is an English Heritage Senior Properties Historian and an Archaeologist with a specialism in British prehistory. Hello. Hello. Hi. Let's begin. What do we mean when we talk about hill figures in England? So these are depictions largely of horses, but of various other things too, that have been created on the hillsides usually of chalk areas of England. And this means that they cluster particularly in Wiltshire, but there are others in Sussex and even as far north as Scotland. And these are hill figures that were created at a variety of different times of history, some of which date back right into the depths of prehistory, but many of which are much more modern in date. These hill figures then, how are they made? What sort of tools were used? Well, they're made very simply, and that's just by removing the turf, removing the grass from the surface of the shape and exposing the bright white chalk of the hillside underneath. And so they are very simple to create, although they obviously take quite a lot of maintenance because over time, bare chalk will be colonised by different plants and seeds and things and will become green without regular maintenance. So what's rather extraordinary about a lot of these chalk hill figures is that they have been maintained over very, very long periods of time. And actually more recently, a few of them have been, for example, covered in concrete or painted, or some of them have got much more modern materials because they're not any longer regularly scoured, which is the term we use for them being restored and maintained. And they've been sort of solidified, I guess, in their sort of modern materials. But some of them are still scoured and have to be maintained on a regular basis. I see. And if they aren't scoured and maintained, does the chalk wear away? Does it erode from rainfall, this sort of thing? It might erode slightly, but it's more the case that the chalk, the white chalk gets covered with grass and and another plant. So uh, in effect, the kind of, you know, the edges and the, the shapes become much more diffuse. And over time, they are lost altogether. In fact, we have quite a few hill figures that are known about from historical records and other sources, which are no longer in existence because they've just not been maintained. And we know that some of the sites were, um, we have records, historical records of that scouring process. So for example, at Uffington Whitehorse, which we'll talk about in a minute, the scouring took place alongside summer festivities when the local community would gather for feasts and wrestling and games and sack races and all kinds of excitements that would accompany the kind of midsummer scouring of the horse. So quite a kind of spectacle went with these occasions. Right. That's really interesting that you mentioned that it coincides with midsummer, this very bright time of year, and I guess rebrightening the surface of the chalk in order for it to shine brightly in, in the landscape. Yeah, I mean, one of the important 
points about these these figures is they are generally carved in places that are visible from a very long distance away. They're symbols or icons that are supposed to be seen and observed from from quite large areas. And so obviously maintaining them and keeping them looking bright and white is part of their interest. And part of the really extraordinary fact is that Uffington, which we'll go on to talk about, is the one that has the eldest date associated with it, which suggests that it's been regularly scoured for thousands of years, which is quite extraordinary. Yes, well, let's get into that history then of Uffington White Horse in Oxfordshire. It's one of the key chalk figures that we're going to talk about in English hillside history. Ronald, can you tell us how old it is? We learned how old it was only about 20, 25 years ago, when a new technique for dating chalk figures was developed, optically stimulated thermoluminescence, OSL. And this was the very first figure to be tested, and the dates which came up were stunning. They centre on the late Bronze Age, so that's just about 3,000 years ago. There's a bit of a problem here, in that although the technique provides this really early date, the figure looks a bit more like the kind of horses you find on Iron Age coins, And so it could be that the results of OSL made the figure just a small amount, a few hundred years older than it actually is. But there's pretty well no doubt now that it is truly ancient. It's prehistoric from the last thousand years of prehistory. So post-Stonehenge, post-Stone Age, but Bronze Age, obviously. Yeah, it's about 2,000 years younger than Stonehenge. But that's still a very long time ago. Absolutely. In comparison to other white horses, its shape is quite abstract. If people are listening now, they might want to sort of open up a new tab on their tablet or mobile phone or you know, internet browser and perhaps have a look at Uffington White Horse. It's quite sort of long-shaped and almost reminiscent to me of some of the ancient cave paintings of bison and these sorts of things that we might have seen in some caves like Lascaux in France and and that sort of thing. So is it actually a horse, I suppose, is is the next question. The answer is almost certainly. On face appearances, it could actually be something else. It could be a cat or it could be a dragon or it could be a dog. But it does bear some resemblance to the stylized figures we find on Iron Age coins and metalwork. And we know they're horses because we know the prototypes from which they developed. So it's probably a horse. I like the way that it's sort of spreading across the landscape as well. It's, it's not trotting or anything. It's quite sort of, there's a lot of movement there, I think, in a way. Yeah, it's leaping. Its position on the hill has changed rather unsurprisingly in the millennia in which it's been up there. It used to be a lot more uh, full face, square on to the valley below than it is now. It's now a bit more upturned, a bit easier to see from the sky than it was. So it was always a spectacularly visible, incredibly charismatic landmark. About its age then, Susan, is there any more detail that has been gleaned from archaeological digs at Uffington Whitehorse? Well, the Whitehorse sits in a landscape that's actually full of other archaeological, prehistoric and later features. It sits on this escarpment overlooking what is called the Vale of the White Horse after the landmark there. And it's on the edge of a a large hill fort, 
where we know from archaeological excavations um, there has been late Bronze Age activity and also Iron Age activity, so in terms of things like settlement, and you've got um, some substantial Iron Age defences there. You've also got just a bit further along the Ridgeway the Neolithic monument of Wayland Smithy. So this is a landscape that has a lot of different periods of monuments and a lot going on in it. And it's clear that this place was a very significant place for millennia. And I have no doubt that that's why it was selected perhaps for the position of this white horse. So the excavations that Ronald was just talking about there, where they had obtained these new OSL dates, were part of a whole wider research project into the Uffington Hill Fort and its surroundings. So we know quite a lot about this place. And actually, it seems to have remained important right into the Roman period. There's a huge amount of evidence for pottery and metalwork and occupation from that period as well. Some people have suggested it's perhaps a site of a shrine or religious, a place of religious significance. So there's certainly, it was a very important place throughout quite a lot of prehistory. Isn't there um, also a ritualistic idea to the Uffington White Horse, Ronald, for these ancient Britons? Yeah, it would have been representing something sacred, but it would also probably have been representing something really important politically. It shouldn't be an accident that it's on that particular hillside, because the horse stood at the meeting point of three great tribal confederacies or kingdoms, those of the Catavalloni, the Atrobates, and the Dabuni. And so the carving could have been a kind of flag, a standard for one of those tribes warning the others off. A trespasses will be prosecuted notice. Or more benevolently, it could have marked a meeting place where the three tribes came together to trade and talk things over and be at peace. Interesting. Let's move on to another white horse, and this is in Wiltshire, uh, in the southwest of England. It's Westbury White Horse. It's about 40 miles southwest of Uffington White Horse, if you're planning a trip of white horses. This horse, though, in Westbury, though, Ronald, how old is this? It's from 1778, but there's a mystery because it represents a remaking of a, an older figure. And we don't know how well the vanished horse that it's on top of actually was. It could be prehistoric like Huffington, but it's first mentioned in 1772. So the origins are an enigma. What we know is we have this stocky, substantial, handsome-looking thoroughbred from the Georgian period, 1778. And that's a boom period for making white horses in Wiltshire and Dorset. Quite a few of these white horses have a similar or later date, as you've just mentioned in this period. What's driving people to create them? Competition, prestige. We know that the people who had them carved are landowners, uh, some quite substantial landowners, some farmers. And to have a white horse on your land gives a certain dignity and a certain reputation to it. And is there any sort of ritualistic aspect to this, that, or has the ritualism perhaps been lost in the thousands of years since Uffington? There's no sign that any actual ritual was carried out at these later, these Victorian or early Victorian white horses. They would have been a certain amount of fun and games in keeping them clean, as at Uffington. If you're going to have the job of scouring a horse, you may as well have a fair at the same time but no religious significance. 
And would there have been also local tourist attractions or landmarks for people? Or, or, or is this just too early for tourism at that point? It's not too early for tourism. There's no sign they were big tourist draws, but there's plenty of sign that people knew they were in the neighbourhood. They were indeed landmarks and wayfinders, and they conferred an extra amount of the special upon the community that maintained them. For any visitors who know the Westbury White Horse, there are lots of undulations in the land at the top of the hillside. Anyone who's done dog walking up there who's from Wiltshire will know. I speak as someone who's from Wiltshire, so I actually know Westbury White Horse very well. Was there a settlement, though, in these undulations at the top of the hill, Susan? Yeah, so the Westbury White Horse is depicted on the side of the hill on which stands Bratton Camp, which is like the Uffington Hill Fort, another Iron Age hill fort. And it's not actually a surprise that quite a lot of these white horses are associated with earlier prehistoric fortifications or earthworks. It seems that people were kind of selecting these sites that had historical associations and were often associated with kind of mythical events. So in particular, Bratton Camp is associated with a battle, the Battle of Ethendon, which is supposed to have taken place in nearby Eddington, the village of Eddington, which is a sort of battle when King Alfred is victorious against the Danes. Um, And at this time when the horses were being cut, there's quite a lot of enthusiasm for highlighting the origins of England, the Saxon battles that were won, the battles that were sort of big parts of kind of mythical British history. And so there's something about these creations of white horses at places that already had mythical and historical associations with deeper prehistory. And that's often the case. You, you get a lot of these white horses on, on places that have, have got associations and hill forts and, and earthworks that people could see. I see. A slightly off-piece question for Ronald then, if this is okay. The image of the white horse, the, a knight on a white steed, where does this image come from? And is, is this related in any way to these chalk horse figures? There's a prestige about white horses in general. They're often selected to be the steeds for heroes and champions because they look so charismatic and they've been used as banners and pub signs for centuries. So they stand for beauty, they stand for purity, as well as for all the connotations of speed and strength and nobility which horses in general carry. That makes an awful lot of sense. I can really understand why a local community would want to have one of these, not just for the artistic visual side of things and almost sort of the confidence side of things, you know, to explain, oh, this is this is our giant land mural, so to speak, but also the prestige that comes with that, the sort of heroism, the pride. There is a particular concentration of white horses in Wiltshire. Why is this? There is a lot of white horses in Wiltshire, and it's, it's mostly because you have the landscapes and the geology that match. So white horses and white hill figures can only be constructed where you've got chalk. And the chalk downs of central Wiltshire and the, the undulating kind of landscape there is perfect for creating these you know, eye-catching landmarks. There are lots elsewhere, but the largest concentration, I think there are about 24 or so white horses known in Britain, and 13 of those are in, in Wiltshire. So if anyone's familiar with driving around the Wiltshire landscape and looking out the car window, you will spot them quite regularly from time to time. Yes, and you'll certainly see the Westbury White Horse if you're getting the train and you're pulling into Westbury uh, Railway Station. You'll see it on the left-hand side, really looming on that hill. It's a very impressive sight. These other white horses then, where else could we see them in the country? There's actually one in Scotland. 
There's one at a place called Kilburn in North Yorkshire. There are a couple over in the east of England. There's a couple in Sussex, one at Lillington. But there are also quite a lot in Hampshire and Dorset and several that have not been maintained. And so we have records of them, but we're not actually sure exactly where they were located and have been lost under the turf for a long time. I gather there's a new one as well, isn't there, on on a hillside near the Channel Tunnel at Folkestone. Is there? I didn't know. I was interested to learn that they were often created in the sort of 18th century at times of kind of national pride and and, um, patriotism. And um, actually, that's kind of jubilee celebrations. It would be a good time to make a a new white horse. When I saw that photograph of the Queen with those two white horses that she was released a few weeks ago, I thought, oh, perhaps we should have done a new white horse for her platinum jubilee. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Well, moving on from white horses to other chalk figures in the landscape, and we'll move on to hillside giants. These are human figures, obviously, or perhaps even mythical, but we'll get onto that hopefully with a question. The best known example is this Cern Abbas giant. How would you describe him, Ronald? Aha! Uh-huh. <laughs> it's a... definitely a he, isn't he? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll come to that. Uh, an enormous stylized representation of the god Hercules, a male figure in full face raising an enormous club with knobs on it. And it's actually those knobs along the club that tell us he's Hercules because they're the right number for a classical Hercules. And the bit of him to which attention is always drawn is his enormous male member. It's erect and it's 30 feet long. It's actually grown in recent centuries because it's moved up a bit to include his navel which has now vanished. And he's got arms and legs, and he's got ribs picked out, and a very stylized ovoid face. And that's it, a very simple, a very stylized outline of what's unmistakably the great Romano-Greek hero of them all, Hercules himself. Yes. I hope this isn't being too unkind to people who are very protective of their hill figure at Cern Abbas, but um, almost like a gingerbread man, I suppose, in terms of simplicity, in terms of the way the chalk has been arranged in this shape of a man. It's quite, it's quite a basic shape, isn't it? It is. And interestingly enough, it doesn't really correspond to any common artistic style from any of the centuries in which we think it was there. So its origins, where does this man come from? Uh, He's a complete enigma at present. There was always a puzzle about him since people began studying him properly, which is that he is a pagan ancient figure, and yet there's no record of him on his hill before the 1690s. And in the following century, it was said by some local people that he'd been carved in the 17th century. And we have really good surveys of descriptions of his hillside. They're objective reports. They're not tourist reports that might have been a bit coy or bashful. They're describing and looking at landmarks in order to map out who owns which bit of land. And none of them describe the giant. And that's why there was quite a controversy and there was a growing body of thought that he was actually from the Civil War period or just after. But now the OSL technique's been brought to bear and he's been dated round about the late Anglo-Saxon period or, or maybe just a bit after the Norman period. 
And the awful thing here is that in terms of art, in terms of context, this makes no sense at all. It would have made a lot had it been ancient or had it been early modern, but not at that particular time when there's no particular cult of Hercules in England and not a lot of knowledge of classical motifs. On the continent, among Charlemagne's people, the Carolingians, Hercules is a a known motif, but it's the wrong time and the wrong place to find that kind of image in England. The only solution to this that might work is if there was an older figure there which looked significantly different and it got remade into a very rude Hercules in the 17th century. So all this idea about this figure being an ancient symbol of fertility with the erect phallus and all the rest of it, that potentially holds no water now, that theory. It's very hard to say because he is an ancient figure in the sense that he is an ancient hero, Hercules, but he doesn't seem to have been ancient in his making. Whether he had some kind of fertility resonance in the Middle Ages or early modern period, we just can't say. There's no particular evidence of it. Well, let's talk about some of the evidence that has been found at Cernabis on the giant. Has there been any digging there, Susan? Yeah, so really recently there was these excavations which Ronald just described in terms of OSL, this technique of being able to look at the sediments and being able to date them roughly to a time period. And the archaeologists dug some very small trenches at the elbows and the feet of the figure, and they were able to use this OSL dating to come up with this date of this sort of earliest medieval period, sort of 700 to 1100 AD, something like that. But there's a bit of mystery still about that because they also found when they were excavating some distinctive snail shells, these very tiny particular species of snail were only introduced to England in the medieval period. So that perhaps sent him a little bit later. So there's still a bit of a, a question mark over exactly when he dates to. And of course, at that time, it's quite a significant period. The abbey nearby was founded in 987. AD. So can it be associated with that event? Uh, It's a very strange thing to be associated with the foundation of an abbey, but perhaps. And those excavations were the first time that anybody had actually tried to tackle the question of the dating and tackle the excavations of excavation of the site. And I guess, you know, the prehistorians were probably hoping for a prehistoric date and others were hoping for a much later date. And it's come out somewhere in the middle, which is slightly flummoxed everyone, really. So we're waiting to see the full publication of those results before we can kind of say more about his associations. Interesting. So the theory of the origins is still kind of very much on the fence, uh, on the hillside. Yeah, I think with all archaeology, you end up with more questions than when you started with. So um, uh, we've got a little bit more information, but not really a conclusive answer yet. Okay. Well, we'll hopefully get some more answers on a future episode. Another hillside giant is the Long Man of Wilmington in East Sussex. How do you interpret this figure then, Susan? What does he look like? So this figure um, is an outline of a human figure and standing with on either side of him are two long lines in the chalk, long poles or or sort of lances. You described the um, Sir Nabis giant as a gingerbread man sort of face. This is slightly less cartoonish. It's, It's more modern looking, I guess. And some people have suggested that it looks a bit like a pilgrim somebody walking with two sticks and he's very much walking he's sort of side on so his feet are side on so he looks like he's he's walking even though his his feet are kind of flat to the ground Um, and he's much more simple it's just the outline of the figure rather than having any internal details Mm. and the first time i saw pictures obviously in preparation for this episode of the long man of wilmington 
I almost thought, because of my modern way of seeing things, that he was almost coming through a doorway, minus sort of the uh, horizontal part at the top, the sort of lintel part. I guess that's another way of interpreting the figure. But um, do we think that these vertical poles on, on either side of his hands are staffs or lances or we're not really sure so you know it's it's another one where we have a documentary the first documentary record of the figure comes from the 18th century from about 1710 and they're described i think in that early record as staves i'm not quite sure what that actually means i mean they're just long poles really so i think you know that it's open to interpretation as to what they represent and again there's been some archaeological work at the site by Professor Martin Bell, which has suggested that the figure was likely to be cut in the 16th or 17th century. So here we do have fairly comprehensive information from both the archaeology and the documentary records that this is quite a recent, it's an 18th century creation. As to exactly what was being depicted, I don't think we know. More mystery. But there is more known about it in recent times. In the 20th century, I gather that the Long Man of Wilmington was actually covered up. That's right. So in the Second World War, a lot of the more conspicuous hill figures were camouflaged. Obviously, a large, white, distinctive hill figure on the south coast of England is going to be an excellent landmark for anybody flying over in an enemy plane. And so like many landmarks and like many different kind of distinctive features, they were camouflaged by the military, by the air ministry, in fact, to make sure that they were not visible from the air. Would they've been camouflaged with foliage and this sort of thing? Yes, I believe so. Yeah, I think foliage was cut and and spread over their figures. Are there any other examples of hillside figures that we know once existed but have since vanished? Yeah, so there's a couple that we know of from documentary records. And there's actually one very close to where both Ronald and I live here in Bristol, which is in the cliffs above Avon Gorge, pretty much very close to where the Clifton Suspension Bridge was later built. There are descriptions from 1480 from William Worcester, who basically describes Bristol in quite a lot of detail, that there are depictions of the of, of the giant who is still famous in Bristol for his name is attached to various different features as a cave there, for example, and, and the cliff, and that there was a, de- a depiction of a giant on the slopes there above the gorge. And again, it's a site where there is a hill fort, an Iron Age hill fort, completely lost now. In fact, we don't know exactly where it was and perhaps it's been kind of lost entirely in terms of the area that it was in with much more later development in the area. But that's just one example of a giant figure that was recorded, but has now long since lost. Weren't there also figures down towards Devon in Plymouth Hoe as well, in by the waterside there? That's right. Yeah. So around about the same time, sort of the late 15th century, people were recording in documentary sources that there were two figures depicted on Plymouth Hoe to be kind of visible, I guess, from the sea, from the coast. And these figures were supposed to depict what they're often called Gogmagog or Corineus and Gogmagog, sort of two fighting giants. I mean, perhaps Ronald can do a much better explanation than I can. It's not my specialist area, but it's supposed to be the two giants fighting each other, a place where the Trojan Corineus uh, hurled Gogmagog to his death. We don't have any images of what these look like. They were recreated actually quite recently, just temporarily, but they're lost now. But they would have been amazing to see, I think, if we, we still had those and they had still been kept visible. Yes. And were they recreated in the exact same space where they would have been? Or Yeah. So there's been a huge amount of development. It's right in the centre of Plymouth. So the actual original grass slopes are much altered, I'm sure, since the time when this was being written about in the 15th century. But yes, I think they just laid out on the grass slopes above the cliffs there, the, uh, the, the figures, as yes, a I, modern interpretation of them. 
Yes, you're right. And I think um, the local football club also supplied the paint, uh, which, they would have, which, which they would have used for the um, lines on the football pitch. Well, let's sort of uh, sum things up then, uh, talking about these uh, hill figures across England. What would you say that connects all of them? What are the common themes? I suppose the first thing is that they're white and they're chalk and they're on a hill. So anything else? There's a lot of local pride involved in each case. They represent community prestige, communal activity in creating them and uh, keeping them in existence, and yet another reason for the name of a particular bunch of people being on the map. And also, they're part of a, a national fascination with particular images at particular times. Giants are enormous in English culture in the late Middle Ages, the Tudor period, and horses in the horse raiding and horse breeding Georgian and early Victorian period. So styles and tastes vary, and that's the way that it should be when you're dealing with any kind of motif. What do these figures tell us about the people who created them? I suppose the first thing is that they were quite artistic and had the will to create such figures, such large figures. Yeah, I suppose some of the early, particularly the prehistoric figures like Uffington, were very much communal projects. They were created by a community of people, or perhaps several communities, you know, coming together to create something that would mark out their land and make it obvious who, who controlled it and who was being represented. But then later on, some of the much more kind of recent chalk figures, they're often sponsored by a landowner, or they're the whim of somebody who wants to create a kind of eye-catching landmark. So in some ways, there's quite a different and varied set of circumstances behind how these places might be created. But the scouring of them does involve lots of people. You have to have quite a few people involved in order to conduct these scouring exercises. And so I think there are some records from Uffington and perhaps one of the other white horses where people had to take part in these annual scourings or, or regular scourings as part of their tenancy or part of their land ownership of local areas, local houses. So that suggests that it was sort of a duty on people to keep these monuments kept up. And that's quite interesting, really, in that people were concerned with keeping these figures clean and, and keeping them visible. And because they were became closely related to their identity and their community, as Ronald said, they're a source of pride. And it's really interesting, actually, why they stop being made. I mean, in the 1850s, pretty much after that, we don't really get any new white horses being created, apart from the one you suggested at the Channel Tunnel. But there seems to be a fashion for them, really, a phase when they're popping up all over the place. And then after that, they're much less popular. Perhaps due to the rise in mechanisation and the decline of ancient pagan traditions. That's just a guess. What, what do you think to that, Ronald? I don't think paganism has much to do with it after the early Middle Ages. And it may not have had a whole heap to do with it before then if the Uffington White Horse was more about tribal identity and politics than goddesses and gods. We just don't know. But certainly there was a tremendous sense of the excitement and vigour of these figures and what they represented. The menace, the human inhumanity of a giant, something that's like us and yet is terrifyingly unlike us, and the beauty and the speed and the grace uh, of a horse. So these figures capture things that are far more eternal and timeless 
than any attributes associated with one kind of religion rather than another. In fact, it's remarkable how little religion there is on the hillsides. You don't get carvings of saints, for example, despite the fact that the Middle Ages had hundreds of them and made thousands of images of them in other artistic media. There are some other types of chalk designs which you can still see in the southwest of England, particularly again in Wiltshire, I gather, related to the military presence. Is that right, Ronald? Yes, there are regimental badges carved into uh, a series of Wiltshire hillsides as uh, a reminder that Salisbury Plain and some of the surrounding areas are the greatest military training ground of the nation. Well, who looks after the sites now, these various figures across the country? Are they looked after by English Heritage, local groups, trusts? So English Heritage has two of the horses in its guardianship site, so Uffington Whitehorse and also Westbury. I have to say Westbury doesn't take that much looking after because it is now concrete. So I think it gets repainted every now and again. But Uffington, our partners, the National Trust who manage the site on our behalf, have regular scouring events and they enlist volunteers from the local community and further afield to come and help regularly maintain the horse. And that actually the National Trust look after a number of the horses across different areas. So it's usually local groups and, and local volunteers who, who still do this work. And does that also coincide with local festivities as well? I don't think it does anymore, no. I think the festivities that were recorded at places like Uffington um, long since ceased. Just final questions then, really. Which figures carved into the English hillside in chalk are your favourites? And Susan, we'll start with you. Oh, mine has to be the Uffington horse. It's so different to the later horses, which generally look like kind of George Stubbs paintings. They're they're very familiar sort of ordinary pictures of horses. The Uffington white horse is running across the hillside. He's kind of stretched out and he has this enormous long tail and this funny kind of beaked sort of face, which makes him look like a very mythical and ancient figure. And the fact that we see the depictions of that horse on Iron Age coins, the fact that we know that across Europe in that time, there was an association between the horse and the sun, for example, and it was used as an emblem in a whole range of different kind of media. It's just a really astonishing survival of a chalk figure that has been scoured and, okay, it's changed and it's slightly altered in in its position and various things, but pretty much it stayed the same for 3,000 years maybe. And the fact that it's stayed there all the way through and it's looked relatively similar. I used to commute from Swindon to London regularly and I always used to look out for the white horse going past on the train. So it is one of those landmarks that still plays a major part in the identity of that area of the people who live in the Vale of Whitehorse. But the fact that it's prehistoric and has been there for so long, yeah, that has to be my favourite. And it's interesting that, you know, you mentioned the train there. They give a sense of place for the people who would have lived there at the time, but they also give a sense of where you are on your journey as well for modern times, which I think is an interesting dynamic. What's your favourite figure from the English hillside that's uh, carved into chalk, Ronald? Well, I have to admit to an affection for the Uffington horse myself, if not least because I see it every time I drive from Bristol to Oxford or take the train from Bristol to London, my two most frequent journeys. And fortune has kept taking me back there for different reasons. But I'll try and be more interesting and say that in many ways I'm more closely connected to the Cernabus giant because in the 1990s, 
I got involved largely by accident in the controversy over its origins. The idea that it could be 17th century was first touted in my University of Bristol. Um, when a public debate was organized, my colleague who had had the genius to come up with the research and the idea for it didn't like the idea of having to defend uh, his proposition in public. And so being a bit more thick-skinned, I agreed to take on the brief for the honor <laughs> of my university and had more success than I ever thought was likely there. And so the destiny of the giant and the question of his origins and my own career have been quite well entangled. And sometimes I can go by him on the way from Bristol to Dorchester. But compared to the Uffington horse, he's a bit more tucked away, a bit less accessible. Yes, that's interesting how you've now been written into the annals of history yourself as part of the Sir Nabbas giant story. Um, as a minor footnote. <laughs> I think for me, my personal favourite would be the Westbury White Horse, partly because I know it very well having grown up in the area. But it also, it's a, it's a great place that you can go and visit. You can walk up, go and explore the earthworks of the ancient settlement up there and can really see for miles up there as well. You can see a lot of the surrounding West Wiltshire countryside, which is fantastic. And the other additional thing is you can have a picnic and you can watch the hang gliders or the paragliders just taking off, just running off the edge of the Westbury White Horse and then into the distance. It, it's quite It's quite amazing. So I don't know if you've... Either of you have seen those things, but it's... Um... I have, yeah. No, the views from Westbury are absolutely stunning. Last time I tried to go and visit Kern Abyss, I was highly disappointed to be there on a day. It was completely fog-bound. <laughs> so we went to the um, the viewpoint and had a look and couldn't see anything. So I need to go back. <laughs> One final thing that's been on my mind as we've been having this discussion is... Is there a scope for future chalk figures to be set into landscapes across the country? Is it still a thing that we're still interested in doing as human beings? Certainly, there's been some new badges added to the regimental series at Fovent in Wiltshire. So there was, for example, a centenary poppy badge added in 2016 to mark the 100 years since the First World War. So these are still created you mentioned the one at the Channel Tunnel. I don't know that one. So I don't know, is that, was that a horse? But it seems to be more common that people are creating emblems that are more relevant, I guess, to the modern day. So whether that's regimental badges or poppies, that probably tells us something about our own times. Rather than horses, we have other things that we want to etch into the hillsides. But yeah, I wouldn't say that there wouldn't be new ones in the future. Do you know what it would be really nice would be to see some of the lost ones refound and rediscovered and remade because some of them must be just hidden under the turf and it would be possible to to discover them again, I think. What do you think, Ronald? There's a, there's a future in this art, isn't there? It's always been with us. Yes, I think it always will be with us. I don't think there'll be any more fads for it, but I think we're likely to get a new chalk figure once every couple of decades or so henceforth, because people are so conscious of them being there. And it's one way in which you can put a very big commemoration of an event or affirmation of an identity into the land. Like Susan, I would love to have some of the lost figures reclaimed. There were giants at Oxford and Cambridge. There was a red horse in Warwickshire in the limestone hills there that dates at least back to the Elizabethan period. 
And yes, they should be there. But frankly, the furore among archaeologists over whether or not the Cambridge giant was rediscovered in the Gog Magog Hills at a place called Wandlebury, with people never being able to agree on whether the figures have been detected or not, makes me a little bit dubious until we evolve better technology, but then we will. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll find out how a church in Lincolnshire came to store thousands of bones. What we've got here is really the tale of a community at Bot right from before the Battle of Hastings right through to Victorian times, so it spans all that time. There's no part of Barton's history that we can't look at using these skeletons. Thanks for listening. See you next time.